Well, hey, uh, again, we've, uh, we've been privileged with uh, having Josh and Sean McDowell here with us this weekend. Uh, just uh, thank Josh for joining us. And uh, some of you guys know uh, Josh and, and Sean, they have a connection with my family going back all the way to the 1960s when, when Josh uh, attended and, and was a regular speaker at my grandfather's church in Southern California. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, Sean, his son, and I have been friends for uh, about 10, 12 years now and done some speaking together across the country. And, and uh, a lot of you guys prayed for our trip last year when we were at Berkeley together. And so this has been a special treat for me personally to have these guys here. And, uh, and I know many of you have told me just how much you've appreciated their ministry as well. So uh, we're going to give Josh a warm welcome. <laughs> If Sean were here, he would echo this with me. It truly was a joy being here the last two days. We do a number of Heroic Truth conferences, and we do almost always the same way everything else. So for us, what makes a difference is the people. And this was kind of special. I feel I'm leaving here having made some neat friends. And uh, when I'm ready to go deer hunting, I'm going to come back. <laughs> but, but next time, invite me when it's warmer. One of the most wonderful times, I took 40 businessmen way up in northern Minnesota to the, the lakes or the water, something waters area and everything. Oh, the, yes. It, boundary waters. Or something. Yeah, it was my, we even participated in the, the great race there of the boats and everything. And uh, it was phenomenal. And I'm born in Michigan. We don't have near as many lakes as you do. But uh, this morning... I want you to give me your minds. That's the biblical approach, not your hearts. If I get to your hearts, I want to do it through your minds. Uh, because if you don't, then it usually falls short. I want you to take and think through, not just hear me, but think with me as I present the material this morning. Because it's kind of the foundation for what we talked about this weekend. Without the subject matter being real in your life I talked about here, so much of what we did this weekend would be for naught because it won't grip young people's hearts and minds. Uh, I'm going to start with slide 13, Keith, with a diagram. There's a diagram that <clears throat> has helped me more than anything in preparing talks for young people, in counseling, and raising my own children. This diagram was so helpful. And it's a diagram of a pyramid, and there's four divisions of the pyramid. At the top of the pyramid, which is a small pyramid, is one's behavior. As you look at a young person, it's their behavior. That is what you see when you see a young person. It's kind of like that tip of the iceberg, where just a little bit of it is above that you can see. The massive part is underneath. Well, it's the same way when you look at a child, you see their behavior. But things relating to that is massive underneath the sight line. Now, what drives our behavior? Folks, it's our values. Our values drive our behavior. But what forms our values? It's your beliefs. Your beliefs form your values that drive your behavior. In part of belief, I like to put worldview. Somebody says, what's a worldview? It's how you view the world. Uh, and how you view the world, the worldview of your beliefs, forms your values that drives your behavior. But something I struggled with for 12, 13, 14 years, and I couldn't answer it. And I read books, everything. What is the difference in engendering young people to believe or not? What is it? With your own children, with people I speak to in audiences and everything. And when I realized this, it totally changed the way I related to an audience. Is... What engenders even our own children or grandkids to want to know your Savior, follow your scriptures, live out your values? Uh, it's relationships. It really is, folks. It's relationships that engenders the beliefs that forms the values that drives our behavior. You say, well, it's the Holy Spirit. Don't go getting super uh, spiritual on me. Of course it's the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't work on a vacuum. The Holy Spirit works on relationships. And then it produces. So, yes, the Holy Spirit is incorporated in all of this. But in uh, Psalm 26.3, David said, I am constantly aware of your unfailing love. 
Now, he didn't say once in a while, a couple times a week. No, he said, constantly, I'm aware of your unfailing love. What'd that do to him? He said, and I've lived according to your truth. If David had not seen that unfailing love, even then he blew it. He probably never would have lived according to God's truth. In um, Psalm 86, 11, there's a prayer that David prayed that I'm sure every one of you want your children to pray it sincerely. Boy, it motivated me with Kelly, Sean, Katie, and, and uh, Heather. Uh, you want your grandchildren to pray this prayer. And this is a prayer. See if it's not true for you. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Why? That I may live according to your truth. Now, isn't that what you want for your children, your grandkids? Uh, but what, what will cause that? What is the trigger for that? David said, for your love for me is very great. In, in the New Testament is a statement that all of us want. You want it at church. You wanted it with your pastors. You want it with me as a guest speaker. You want it in camps. You want it in your home. It says, speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. That's what we want. But what's the condition for that speaking the truth? It says, in love. Now, in love does not make it true, folks. You can speak truth in hatred and it's still truth. <laughs> Nobody will want it, but it's still truth. What speaking truth in love, whether with your own children or whatever, what the love does is cultivate the ground to receive. It cultivates the relationship to receive the truth. I put it this way. Truth without relationships leads to rejection. I have a lot of parents come to me. It's not true all the way around, but for the majority it is. Well, my kids have all rebelled this way and that. What can I do? And I have to first find out, well, what kind of relationship you've had with your kids? Because until you know that, it's hard to counsel parents. If the father especially has a very loving, intimate relationship with those kids, then you counsel one way. But tell you what, if the father hasn't built a loving, intimate relationship, you don't dare to counsel that way. It'd be so destructive. You have to counsel another way. And I put it this way, and this is probably the number one phrase I've known for around the world, and even quoted by psychologists and psychiatrists, rules without relationships leads to rebellion. Oh, I believe that. If somebody ever said to me, what's the key in raising kids? I don't even have to hesitate. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Kids do not respond to rules, folks. They respond to rules in a context of a loving, isn't that right, young lady? I saw you two look at each other and you're shaking. I love that, man. I wish I'd had a video of what just happened there. But rules without, kids don't respond to rules. They respond to rules in the context of a loving, intimate relationship. Or I put it this way, discipline without relationships leads to anger, bitterness, resentment. I would never, never want to discipline a child who did not absolutely know I love them. Because eventually it would backfire. It'll be the opposite of the very purpose of your discipline. What about peer pressure? I'm going back to slide two, Keith. What about, you know, we all fear our kids in high school, all the peer pressure people talks about. What about the social peer pressure to do things contrary to your values and all? And then going advertising, look at advertising. Oh my gosh, how, what am I going to do in raising my kids in this culture? With college, going away to college, am I going to lose my child? Uh, the social media, movies, videos, TV, the internet, and equal to the internet, pornography. I mean, boy, what we face as parents today, is there anything that can trump all of these outside influences in our child? You know what research shows? Secular research shows there's only one thing, a loving, intimate relationship with one's father. You're kidding. No. That's the number one thing that trumps those pressures. Not the mother, the father. But now, you've got to put this research in context. The research shows that both the father and the mother have a loving, intimate relationship with the child. This is the father here with the Superman ring is just a little bit above. In all the research, it's like 4 or 5 percent uh, on the father instead of the mother. Now, that's why you can state it's the father, not the mother, but statistically, it's meaningless. It kind of means that they have equal influence in that child, but here's the problem. 
Normally, the mother is here and the father is here. And that's the devastation in children's lives. Um, with, after the shootings in Columbine, Columbia University commissioned a very interesting study to be done. It was a scientific study of young people, but they didn't do any research. Doesn't that sound crazy? A scientific study, and they did no research, but it was marvelous. It was brilliant. You say, how could that be brilliant? Well, they did something far better. What they did was take the research, the results of over 160 scientific studies of young people. And then they correlated all that. And when they did, they changed the title of their study from a scientific title, now get this, to a relational title. Scientists going with a relational title called, when they released it, called Hardwired to Connect. Now, why did they do that? Because they said, from the moment a child is born, and that's my grandson, one of my many, Beckett, I guess it isn't, um, <laughs> We're having a little trouble with the computer. It's not all bouncing up. Um, but what they found was this, that when a child is born at the moment of birth, their brain, now this is important, their brain is already physically, biologically, not emotionally, not spiritually, physically, biologically wired for relationships, to connect at the moment of birth, which means even before birth, they're wired that way. But you got to make sure. It's not emotional. It's not spiritual. It is physically. They are wired to connect in relationships. And this is what they found out. That to impart one's values, you want to impart truth to your children, to your grandkids, you're a Sunday school teacher, pastor, whatever, to impart values and truth to a young person. They said you must do two things. This is science speaking. One, you must develop a loving, intimate relationship with that child or they'll probably walk away from your truth. Sounds like they've been reading the Bible. Second, you must model the very truth or value you want to see ingrained in your child. If they do not see it, they will not believe it. That's kind of like what Jesus said. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Or when Paul said, my children, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. I'm, I'm starting to address pornography a lot because it is the greatest threat to the cause of Christ in the history of the world right now. Internet pornography. Internet pornography is the greatest hindrance to the church ever. Nothing has come close to it. Problem is, nobody's talking about it. At this very moment, it's ruining more churches, more pastors, more youth pastors, more parents, more men, more women, more children than anything ever has in the history of the world. And I just spoke on it recently at Moody Founders Week, which was quite revolutionary because they're not used to subjects like that being addressed. And the thing I laid out there and the more I say it, the more I realize how true it is. I don't know how you will ever defeat the influence of pornography. Now look, of all men who attend evangelical churches, 80% watch pornography. Right here, 80% do. 47% of all women. 78% of all evangelical fundamental born-again young people that attend an evangelical church watch pornography. 90% of all youth pastors. Boy, it's hard to say that. Of all evangelical youth pastors, Jesus, 90% watch pornography. And I said, we will never raise healthy children. I don't know how you can, unless you have created in your life and family a faith so dynamic they want to pursue it. They want to pursue it. Then I don't matter what you teach. They probably won't, it won't grip them. And this is what... Uh, Paul and Jesus was saying here, and this is what science find out, is that our faith in our home better be such that our children want to pursue it. Or it doesn't matter what we say, we'll so often fall on deaf ears. 
I had the privilege of giving a commencement address for uh, one of the great seminaries in the world, the Dallas Theological Seminary. I think it's one of the largest, too, in the world, about 5,000 out. And I stood up. I was a little intimidated because I looked at the monitor. I about panicked. Here was Chuck Swindoll, and here was Howie Hendricks. I thought, oh, my gosh. I mean, that's like God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I knew I wasn't God the Son. <laughs> And I was, I was hoping they were nervous with my being there as I was with them being there. And I said to the students, it kind of shocked them a little bit. I said, you're fortunate to come to a seminary like this. You learn how to dig out truth, how to teach it expositorily. But I said, one of the downsides of a seminary like this, and it does happen, I've met some of your graduates. Students will go out of here and they'll say, oh man, I love truth. I just want to teach truth. I'm just going to find that church, spend my life there, and just teach truth. And you see some of the heads shaking. And I said, if that's your desire, why don't you go sell used cars? Don't go into the ministry. If all you want to do is teach truth, don't go into the ministry. Because ultimately you will fail. It's not biblical. He said, boy, heads were snapping. And I said, look, it's unbiblical. What is a teaching truth is not what turned the world upside down. It's not, contrary to what most Christians think. What turned the world upside down? Well, Paul emphasized over and over again in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He said, this won't pop up because for somehow in the computer won't pop up a few of my slides. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the truth of the gospel of God. Say, see, we got to impart truth to our kids. Have devotional, send them to a good church, a good camp. Make sure they get into the word and they pray. Yeah, and you'll lose your kid. 80% of all them will leave the church and their faith within 18 months of high school graduation if that's all you do because it's not biblical and it won't, the faith won't catch. Notice what Paul said, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, not only, then what? Whoa, it's a gospel plus? Doesn't that sound heresy? It is a gospel plus. Not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. What turned the world upside down was truth in the context of relationships. It was not just sharing the truth. It was sharing your very life. Whether it's a preacher, an evangelist, a father... Or mother, whatever. In, in, in the same book, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, Paul said, and you know that the way we lived among you was further evidence, further proof. Whoa, I'm an apologist. Does that get my attention? The way that I live among my children is evidence? Whoa, is proof of what? Oh, this is incredible. Of the truth of our message. You want kids to believe the truth? Then live it out. That's almost guaranteed. If you don't live it out, they probably won't believe the truth. Especially 18 months after high school graduation. Paul said, I brought my children to God by my message. Yes, we got to have family devotions. Teach my kids. Make sure they pray. Go to a good church. Get them into good camps. They've got to get into the Bible. And you'll lose them. Notice what Paul said, I have brought my children to God by my message and by the way I lived before them. What they're saying is, we need to demonstrate the truth in our lives that our kids want to pursue it. They want to pursue it. I've been constantly aware of your unfailing love and I've lived according to your truth. Columbia University, after the shootings in Columbine in Colorado a number of years back, commissioned a study to be done, and they wanted to find out how family structure between a, a family with a single mother as a head and a two-parent biological family, how those family structures affected a child's involvement in drugs, alcohol, and extrapolated out to violence. Well, this is what the study showed going to puncture a hole in your balloon, that a child raised in a single parent home where the mother's the head is 30% more likely to go into drugs, alcohol, and violence. Now, folks, in research, that's high. But a child raised 
in a two-parent biological family, but with a fair-to-poor relationship with the father, is 68% more likely to go into drugs, alcohol, and violence. Over twice as likely in a two-parent family where there's a fair-to-poor relationship with the father than a single-parent family headed by the mother. Doesn't that puncture your balloon? You know what it is for a child raised in a two-parent biological family, but there's a good to excellent relationship with a father? This is incredible. That child is less than 6% likely to ever use drugs, alcohol, or violence. It's not just the structure like we so want to emphasize in the church. The relationship within the structure, I believe, I truly believe, has a greater impact than the structure the relationship does, Jason. But it's not the structure, it's not the relationship. It's relationships in the context of the structure that impacts the child. It's not truth, it's not relationships. It's truth in the context of relationships. And again, after Columbine, the FBI commissioned a study to be done. It's called the Classroom Avenger Profile. They wanted to see if they could come up with a profile of a child that would help the teachers, the administrators, and the police to detect potential shooters in the schools. The, Avenger, the Classroom Avenger Profile. When they released their study after millions of dollars, they found three basic ingredients to the profile. One, they were all white. I say to my African-American, Hispanic friends, I'm sorry, you don't fit the profile. They're all white. Second, they're all middle class. Not poor, not rich. I wish the White House could get this through their thinking with ISIS. Most of the problem with radical Islam is not poverty. It's a theological worldview. I mean, look in England when the various violence has taken place there and, and uh, John, whatever it is, that beheaded all those people and everything. They're doctors, psychologists. They're from middle class and up. And everybody's going around saying, we've got to eliminate poverty, we'll eliminate ISIS. No! Then, this was the clincher. Number three of the profile, the Classroom Avenger profile, number three. The father, not the mother, was either distant, not involved, or absent in the parenting process. Whew. Rules without relationships leads to rebellion. For I am constantly aware, David said, of your unfailing love. Mom, Dad, I've been constantly aware of your unfailing love. And I've lived according to your truth. If we do not create a faith that is worth pursuing. I mean, it's like in the years that I traveled on Why Wait? Sexual Purity. We launched the first ever national campaign, became a global campaign. And I said to parents, <laughs> I said, so many of you are teaching your kids, you need to wait, you need to wait. God will bless and everything else. But your kids know that mom and dad have a lousy marriage. Well, I mean, come on, kids are not stupid. Why should I wait? Because if mom and dad waited and they got what they got. I don't want the, what they have, so why should I wait? Hey, that's big with kids. They're not dumb. Johns Hopkins Medical School, I, I believe, is the best research school in the world. Uh, very authoritative. They commissioned a study to be done of two doctors, Thomas and Dwazunski, to do a 30-year study of 1,337 graduates at Johns Hopkins Medical School. Why? To find out if they can find a common cause factor, a predictive factor in a child's life that when that child is older, they can predict five major diseases. One, mental illness. Second, hypertension. Third, malignant tumors. Fourth, coronary heart disease. Five, suicide. Can they look at a child and say, if this is true in a child, then the chance of these five things are off the charts. It doesn't mean they're going to have all those five things or anything, but the probability of it is so much higher. After 30 years of research, Think what that cost. They only found one common cause factor for those five diseases, only one. 
and it wasn't their diet. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it was an exercise to God be the glory. <laughs> you know what it was? The lack of a loving, intimate relationship with one's parents, especially the father. I thought, you've got to be kidding. Science has gone too far. So I called Johns Hopkins Medical School, and they couldn't explain to me why. So I'm so thankful they gave me the contacts with the two professors that did the study. It took them three minutes to convince me why it's true. It's because if something is true in every one of your lives, every person in the world, no matter racial background, poor, rich, whatever, every single person in the world has this factor in their life. It's called stress. And this is what they found. A child raised in a very loving, intimate home, especially in relationship with the father, as that child grows up, they can handle stress so much better as an adult. And all five of those diseases are directly related to stress. Now, why wouldn't that be true if, as Dartmouth Medical School discovered, that when a child is born, their brain is already wired for connection in relationships? Well, if you don't have those connection relationships, then why wouldn't you have literal physical consequences? You do. You know, what does a single mom do? What does a single father do? I don't know how single moms do it. I just don't. When I think how many times I've rescued my wife from my four kids, <laughs> how many times I sent Dottie to her parents' house for three, four, five days just to get her head screwed on straight, and I'd take care of the kids. Single moms don't have someone like that. How many times I would say to my oldest daughter, who would sass her mother, oh, I just can't take kids sassing parents. I don't care who it is parent or not, but a child sassing an adult. Ooh, it just grates me. And one time, man, I spun her around in love, grabbed her and sat her down in passion. <laughs> and I got down on my knees and I looked that young girl right in the eyes. She was about six, seven years old. I said, Kelly, you might talk to your mother that way, but you will not talk to my wife that way. I love that woman. I will protect that woman from people outside the family, and I will protect her from anyone in the family. Don't you ever speak to my wife that way again. It worked. <laughs> we tried everything. It worked. About six months later, she was seven years old, and six months later, she started to sass her mother. She stopped, looked at me, and said, Oh, Dad, I can't speak to your wife that way, can I? <laughs> I said, That's right. But I don't know how single moms do it. But I know this one thing. Almost every single mother I've ever gotten to know is doing a far better job than what they think. But it'll take them to their kids about 22, 23 years old to realize the incredible job they did. Second, I'm not sure, I, I could have, but I cannot recall ever meeting a child of a single mother. It's not true always of a single dad. But I can't remember ever meeting a child of a single mother who wouldn't eventually say, I know my mother loves me. And I say to single moms, milk it for all you got, and you will win. You will win with your children. But you might not know until they're 22, 23 years old. But uh, it's, it has to be hard being a single mom. In a 2005 Canadian health survey of 13,000 people, they learned that children whose parents divorce are more likely to suffer a stroke. Why? Stress. Boy, when parents say to me, oh, kids, they're viable, they adjust to it. You know, for years they taught that in the schools, you know, when they would counsel a child of a divorced parent. Oh, they, they can adjust more easily than adults. Now they're not teaching anymore because it's not true. In fact, they're finding the older the child, even 25, 30 years old when the parents divorce, is even harder on a 25, 30, 35-year-old than a child. They're not viable. It affects their stress level. Another study showed severe and chronic stress in childhood 
can alter the development of the body's regulation of the stress hormone cortisol. That's why what a child faces in their home can affect them in order because it affects the stress hormone. Whew. Over time, it can make children vulnerable to a range of diseases. Why? Because so many of the diseases are attached to stress. My Katie, my third child, she's now 33, five, three children under five. She went to a Christian school. We, we moved from California to Texas, and she come home. She said, Dad, I'm number one in the class. My first three kids were valedictorian. And she said, I'm number one in the class, and I'll, I'm number two in the class. And Charlotte is just a little bit ahead of me, but Dad, I'm going to be valedictorian. She said, Charlotte's a lot smarter than I am, Dad, but I'll be valedictorian. I said, how can you say that? She said, Dad, her folks aren't divorced, but they're fighting all the time and everything, and Charlotte never wants to be at home. She breaks out crying at school. Dad, she can't focus. She can't focus on her studies. She said, I come home and you and mom love each other. Our home is like a, a, a place to get away from all the stress of the world. It's just fun being home. Dad, I can focus on my studies. Well, my daughter became valedictorian. I'm proud of her. She went and said to the administration, why can't both of us be? So they said, okay. So they had two valedictorians. But you know what made the difference? It wasn't the intellectual. It was the emotional. And often that's what affects a child's school grades. Not all the time, but it's, it's having to deal with emotions in their lives and relationships at home that affects them at school. Ask any teacher, they know that. You take a child 12 to 14 years old who doesn't have a loving, intimate relationship with his or her father. Do you realize it's 300% more likely to attempt suicide? But look at this, a 15 to 16-year-old who does not have a close, loving, intimate relationship with their father, this is probably the highest stat for suicide, is over 400% likely to attempt suicide. Now, it doesn't mean if somebody doesn't have a loving, intimate relationship, they're going to commit suicide. No. But it is one of the high factors of suicide. Why? The emotional stress level. How stress plays such a powerful role in all of our lives. Lindsay Lohan, I think, really summed it up for Britney Spears and, and Hilton and all of them. When in one of her songs called Confessions of a Broken Heart, these were the lyrics. And I wear all your old clothes, your polo sweater. I dream of another you, the one who would never leave me alone to pick up the pieces. A daddy to hold me, that's what I needed. See, Lindsay Lohan never had the opportunity to see that unfailing love. So it was hard for her, not impossible, hard for her to not only know the truth, but to live it out. It's relationships. Look at Michael Jackson, the king of pop. And I think it's done one of the greatest albums ever done in history. You know, after his big album came out, hit the world like huge. I learned from very reliable sources. He would go out at midnight and walk the streets of Hollywood in Beverly Hills. And he'd find people and go up to him and say, would you be my friend? And that's sad. Would you be my friend? He shared in an interview several years before his trial that... Um, Hey, man, let it go. I like that. <laughs> Sound like a rooster. <laughs> I mean, a few of them I wanted to kill in life. Roosters, not people. <laughs> but Michael Jackson, the king of pop, said, when I was five years old, my parents started the Jackson Five. And he said, in our first rehearsal, something went wrong, and I turned and said, Daddy, 
He said, my father stopped the rehearsal in a stern voice. He said, I am not your father. I am your manager, and don't you ever forget that. And Michael said, two years for his trial. I've never forgotten that to this day. Shortly before his trial, the King of Pop was speaking at Oxford University in England. What an oxymoron. And he was speaking on the subject uh, on his new foundation called Help, Help the Children, Help a Child, which a lot of people made jokes about. And about 13 minutes into his talk to 800 students and professors at Oxford, the King of Pop started to cry. And then he just wept like a child. Everybody felt a little uneasy, etc. In fact, somebody got up, they said, and took him up some tissue and everything. He was crying so hard. After a few minutes, Michael Jackson got his composure, and out of nowhere, he said, it shocked the audience, he said, I just wanted a dad, a father who showed me love, and my father never did that. He never once said, Michael, I love you. You want to understand Michael's behavior and all? Look at his daddy. You see, Michael never had that opportunity to see that unfailing love. So it was hard for him, not impossible, but hard for him not just to know the truth, but to live it out. I've been constantly aware of your unfailing love, and I've lived according to your truth. I was in Phoenix. It was in October, a beautiful day. And in five days, I did 13 high school assemblies. Folks, that's a killer. That's like five 80-hour work weeks in one day. And the second assembly was at 12 o'clock noon at a school with 1,500 students. And we held it outdoors. It was a beautiful day. And they had this grass knoll about two, three times larger than this here that sloped down a little. And at the bottom, there were two large rocks or two small boulders. And I liked that because you could stand on it to hold the attention because outdoors there's so many distractions to a speaker. And so as they were introducing me, <laughs> the principal standing next to me. So at that point, just before I got up speaking, leans over and says, by the way, there's a group of goths on campus who will come to break up the assembly and literally try to throw you off campus. He saw my surprise. He said, look, they do it all the time. We kick them out of school, they come back, they do it again. We kick them out of school, they come back, they do it again. Well, somebody ought to wake up. Not the school, the parents. You want some advice if you have kids in school? This advice for 54 years working with kids and raising four. At school, almost never, ever, ever defend your child. Your precious little daughter was a brat. You hear me? Was a brat. Teachers are usually right. And when you reinforce bad behavior, you're really looking for trouble. And so when I get up to speak, within a few seconds, I just started some introductory comments, up came six goths, stood closer than that fence is away from me. And they were kind of scary looking. They were totally dressed in black, heavy black mascara makeup. Their hair was every color imaginable, every type of cut. They, they had on, um, when, when they weren't tattooed, which is unusual for a goth, a punk, no, but a goth, they were body pierced. And they had big chains around their neck, and the two leaders had two iron crosses. And they stood about this far away from me in front of everyone like, I dare you. I love that. I'd pay people to look that way. <laughs> I mean, no, everybody was waiting. What's going to happen to the speaker? I was wondering too. <laughs> and don't tell me kids can't hold it. Not one of them went potty. Because <laughs> they wanted to find out what's going to happen here. And... Um, so, without anyone knowing it, I switched my talk to talk about intimacy that every kid wants. But how do you define intimacy? Intimacy is the capacity to be real with another person. No facade, no barrier. That's what every kid wants with that. These parents go around and say, oh, you can't be perfect. Oh, get your head screwed on straight. I've never known one kid that ever expected mom and dad to be perfect. That's just lame duck excuses of parents. 
The number one thing a kid wants is just to be real. To dad, just to be real. No facade, no barrier. So I, since they set me up and never told me, I took a little advantage of them. Boy, I brought Jesus in. I was more fearful with the gospel than I were the administration. And I brought her right down to a relationship with Christ and how he could give you the capacity to be real. And when I finished my talk, I stepped off that small boulder. And when my foot hit the grass, the head of the goss leaped towards me. 1,500 students went, <coughs> He came up within six inches of my nose. I remember well because he, he, he had buffalo breath. <laughs> and what 1,500 students didn't see and hear, they didn't see him crying like a baby, just tears. It's all I could do to keep from laughing. You women know why. His mascara was running. And then he'd go like this, and he would smear it all over his face. And I kept my composure up. And what they didn't hear him say, very, very politely respectful, said, Mr. McDowell, would you give me a hug? I no sooner said yes, literally, before I could bring my arms up, he grabs him in front of the whole school, clasps my arms to the side, puts his head in my right shoulder and cried like a baby. It seemed like it lasted forever because his, his, his chain was embedded into my chest. <laughs> and when he stepped back, what no one heard him say, and the next time you make some joke or sly remark about the way a goth or a punk or guys with their big baggy pants hanging down their back showing everything else, you think of what this young man said. He said, Mr. McDowell, my father never once gave me a hug or told me he loved me. You think of that next time you see a guy or a girl like that. You see, that young goth never had the opportunity to see that unfailing love. Therefore, it was hard for him, not impossible, to not just know the truth, but to live it out. With raising my four children, three daughters and a son, I've always tried to be a proactive father, which means this. I, it's like a cowboy movie. I tried to cut the problems off at the pass. I believe when it came to attitudes, behavior, beliefs, and everything, the sooner you get to them, the easier it is to handle it and impact your child's life. But that means you've got to know your child. You've got to watch. You've got to listen to their teachers. I don't know how anyone, I just think it's so dumb to ever try to raise a child without arm-in-arm -arm locking with their teachers. I don't know how you can do it. Our teachers were some of the greatest, better than our youth pastor or anyone. They knew the kids better. Our teachers helped us to raise. I mean, it's so wonderful to call a teacher and say, Mrs. So-and-so, uh, we've seen this in Katie at home. Have you seen it at school? Or to have a teacher call you. We've seen with Kelly, she's been kind of doing this a little bit. Have you noticed that at home? You know what we have. Well, what can we do about it together? Ooh, how, why would you ever want to raise a child without locking arms with their teachers? It makes it so much easier and so much more effective. And so I learned to ask my children three questions when I saw a behavior, an attitude, or maybe a belief or something that wasn't healthy, that I needed to address as their father. And so I'd ask them three questions. If they answered yes to these three questions, oh man, I was home safe. It was like clay in a potter's hand. But if they hesitated or even answered no to one of these three questions, I'm in trouble. It didn't mean I couldn't impact her life, but so much harder. First question was, Sean, do you know that I love you? Yeah, Dad. Sean, do you know that I love your mother? Yeah, Dad. Sean, when you get married and marriage and love and family and children and sex, do you want with your wife what I have with your mother and with your children what I have with your kids? Yeah, Dad. Then, son, don't do that. It can rob you of that. Do you notice those three questions? They had nothing to do with substance or, or uh, truth. They had to do with what? Relationships. relationships. You know what I learned? I had to elevate the relationship before I ever dealt with the problem. And I did it through the three questions. And then deal with the problem, the attitude, the behavior, whatever, in the context of the relationship. Oh, what a difference. Oh my gosh, that's when you can really, it doesn't work all the time, but you can have an impact in your child's life. Rules without relationships leads to rebellion. Truth without relationships leads to rejection. 
Discipline without relationships leads to bitter anger, resentment, even hatred. I learned that the more I build a relationship with my children, the easier it was to mold them. And the more I lived out my faith with their mother, the more my children wanted to pursue what I had with their mother. When I wrote the book, one of the, I don't even think it's out there, it's one of the newer books, on how to talk to your child, straight talk about sex, meaning in the age of the internet. The internet's changed everything. Almost every book out there about how to talk to your children about sex was done before the impact of the internet. Most of them are irrelevant because the internet's changed everything. You cannot raise your children the way your parents raised you or kiss them goodbye with the internet, whether morally, spiritually, sexually, or what. And so one of the fellows out there with a the red beard and the red hair, his name is Justin. He's a good video cameraman. I sent him to each one of my children's home. I said, I want you to do a one hour interview. Like one of the questions they asked was, because in the book, I wanted to use real life stories, but I wanted to be accurate. When you're a writer or speaker, it's so easy to embellish, to add to without realizing it. Not like Williams did. Uh, on NBC, but it is. It's easy to embellish after a while. And so I always try to be, so I sent him out there to interview him to really stick with the truth of the stories. And one question was, when was the first time your dad ever talked to you about sex? My three daughters and my son immediately said, I don't know. He always talked about it. At breakfast, at lunch, at dinner, on the way to a soccer game, on the way to a movie, on the way to school. My dad always talked about it. I always say to parents, if your child can remember the first time you talked to him, you blew it. You blew it. A child should never be able to remember the first time. And then second question was, what was your greatest motivation to stay pure sexually? What was your greatest motivation to wait until marriage for sex? I cried and I read the transcript. My three daughters and my son said, because I always want, wanted what my father has with my mother and it was worth waiting for. If we do not give our children a model of our faith where they want to pursue it, I don't care what you teach them. It, it will work in some cases, but it's so much harder. It's relationships. Now, I almost never give this, this talk without part two. How do you build those relationships? Most people don't know how. Most men don't know how, especially because they never had it with their own dad. I didn't. And I watch people at church everywhere. I watch fathers relating to their wives or their children, and I plagiarized. I learned what that father did, this father. And then I developed principles that I applied in relationship called seven principles of parenting. Wow, it doesn't matter how old your child is, except in rare situations, they work. And But I don't have the opportunity here to give part two of this talk. So if you go to my website, where is it? It's on the bottom part there. See the green part in the bottom? Go to josh.org forward slash seven A's. It's seven A's of parenting. And it's a whole portfolio. There's a Dr. Duncan that wrote a one-page thing on parenting that, oh, it impacted me. And I thought, I want to share this with other parents. And there's a number of other things there. You can download all free. And it's seven simple principles, except in a rare situation, will work. But there's no guarantee to parenting, folks. You can be the greatest father, the greatest mother in the world. You can have the most loving marriage. You can have a marriage where your children want to pursue it. But you hear me. There's absolutely, I don't care what, if you raise children God's way or what, there's absolutely no guarantee to parenting. You can be the greatest parent in the world, do everything right, and your child can grow up and look at you and say, I hate you, and walk away. But if you do it right, you have a fighting chance. I have four incredible children. Oh, my gosh. I wouldn't want them to be different in any way. In their love for Christ, for me, their mother, what they do, everything. But I'll tell you this. I could have had a fifth child, raised them the same way, everything, and they could have broken my heart. There's no guarantee to parenting. But when we know the right steps to do, it gives us such an advantage uh, for it. There's a book out there called The Father Connection. This is one every award there. 
And it has a thing we added called 60 fun things that dad can do with his kids. You know one of the greatest things I did with my kids, I still think about it. We had a progressive dinner at fast food restaurants. No, I'm serious. It was incredible. Everyone at school then wanted to do it with their dad. Can we do a progressive dinner? We'd start out with French fries here, a hamburger here, a dessert here, a drink here, and everything. It was a blast. So I do 60 fun things to do uh, with your kids. And then that has the seven A's built in, a little differently what I treat on there, how to be a hero to your kids. Oh, this is one of my all-time favorite books. In fact, one of my philosophy is, not only did I want to be a hero to my children, I want to be a hero to their friends. Why? The more I became a hero to Sean's friends, Kelly, Katie, Heather's friends, the less negative peer pressure they would ever put on my kids. Like Heather one time, I didn't know the fellow, and I said, honey, I really don't know this guy. You're, you're all going out with night. Daddy, don't worry. He respects you so much, he would never do anything that he thought you wouldn't like. I said, yes. I put the fear of Josh in his life. And then the new book just out called 10 Ways to Say I Love You, Embracing a Love That Lasts. Um, this here is a good answer to uh, 50 Shades of Grey. The best answer to 50 Shades of Grey, I want what my daddy has with my mother, sexually. That's the, <laughs> that's the ultimate answer to 50 Shades of Grey. The books are out there, as many of you know, from this weekend. I get nothing from my side of contract. All the royalties have to be given away to win young people for Christ, to Christ in the world. But I'm going to be leaving here. I wish I was heading home. It's another 10 days. But it's been a joy. And Jason, just to be with you again and to see you and Sean, I just love it that the two of you have become, after your father and I uh, were friends over so many years and I knew your grandfather and everything, his grandfather was the head of just about the biggest church in America at that time. I was just a kid. He'd bring me in to speak at the main morning sessions. No one does that except Dr. D.A. Carlson. He brought me in. And I did all, man, I did their men's conferences, their women's conferences, their youth thing. He kind of, his father kind of mentored me and broke me into speaking because he took a chance with me. For to me, there was no real chance in it. But anyway, he took a chance. So I just want to say thank you for the privilege of being here uh, at your church and your community. Uh, and I hope someday to come back when it's warm. God bless. <laughs> What a, what a special treat to have Josh and Sean here. And Josh, thanks for that great, uh, great word this morning and many, many points of encouragement to take home with us from that message. And I want to let you know uh, the message you just heard this morning will be online on our church website uh, by tomorrow for sure. So uh, if you want to go back and revisit that. But, uh, but also, please, yeah, Josh. Tomorrow, the part two talk, can you put it up on your website? We yeah, for sure, absolutely. I'll have it to you tomorrow. Uh, that would be awesome. Where well, yeah. you can download Excellent. and put it on there. All right, so look for Seven part A's. two as well. We'll get that up there as well. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. And uh, again, please make sure to check out some of the tremendous resources they have specifically related to the issues of relationships, parenting, marriage. So, uh, so check those out. Let me leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 15, verse 13. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, friends.